0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.
2: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode 346 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast.
2: As you guys will recall, we used the last show to talk about one of the most controversial aspects of the Battle of Gettysburg. That is Dan Sickles taking it upon himself to move the Third Corps forward to a new line there at the left end or southern end, of the Federal position on the second day of the battle.
0: From the beginning, Dan Sickles seems to have been deeply unhappy with the position that Army Commander George Meade had assigned to the 3rd Corps. That morning, when orders from Army headquarters directed him to relieve the troops of Geary's 12th Corps Division, who were being moved to the northern end of the Union line. Sickles grumbled that he didn't know what position the Third Corps was supposed to hold because Geary's troops had occupied a bivouac area and not held any specific point.
2: However, despite his grumbling that morning, and despite later evidence to the contrary, Sickles, for the next 50 years, would maintain that in spite of his best efforts on July 2nd to obtain specific orders for the 3rd Corps, he never received any definite instructions about the line that Meade expected him to hold. This, dear listeners, is pure hockey. Winfield Scott Hancock, commanding the 2nd Corps, knew of Sickles' orders, since the 3rd Corps was next to his troops. Hancock mentioned in his official report after the battle that the 3rd corps was supposed to connect with his left flank extending the federal line of battle south along Cemetery Ridge toward the Round Tops. Hancock was a bit more specific in his testimony before the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War stating, "Quote: General Sickles was directed to connect with my left and the Round Top Mountain." thus forming a continuous line from Cemetery Hill to Round Top Mountain.
0: In other words, Sickles' Third Corps, on Hancock's left, was to be a part of a coherent, continuous line of defense, the famous Federal Fishhook line of defense. In Meade's committee testimony, he stated as much, saying, quote, I had sent instructions in the morning to General Sickles directing him to form his corps in line of battle on the left of the Second Corps, and I had indicated to him, in general terms, that his right was to rest upon General Hancock's left, and his left was to extend to the Round Top Mountain, plainly visible if it was practicable to occupy it. End quote.
2: In his book, Gettysburg, the Meade-Sickles Controversy, Richard Sowers has an entire chapter titled General Sickles and His Orders, July 2, 1863, and Sowers provides ample evidence that refutes Sickles' absurd claim that he hadn't received any instructions as to the line that Meade expected the Third Corps to hold. The truth is that Sickles simply didn't like the line that Meade expected him to occupy, there along the southern portion of Cemetery Ridge, because he, Sickles, considered it a bad tactical position.
0: The line that Meade instructed Sickles to hold did have its drawbacks. It was low, lower than the higher ground out to its front along the Emmitsburg Road and fairly extensive patches of woods on and immediately in front of this sector of Cemetery Ridge left very poor fields of fire for Union artillery. To Sickles' mind, these disadvantages were reason enough to advance his corps to that higher ground to his front, but he was wrong in much the same way that Francis Barlow had been wrong the day before, on the first day of the battle, when Barlow advanced to that little knoll north of Gettysburg where his division of Federals came to grief at the hands of the attacking Confederates.
2: While it was certainly desirable for a defensive position to occupy strong ground, it was absolutely indispensable for the position to be coherent and sufficiently manned. However, after Sickles, without orders, moved forward to that new line along the Emmitsburg Road and Hawks Ridge, his position was neither coherent nor sufficiently manned. First, let's look at the big picture. The ground south of Gettysburg was favorable for defense, but not perfect. That meant that to keep the entire Federal Army's defensive line compact and coherent, some parts of the line would lie on weaker ground, but the overall position of the Army of the Potomac would be stronger than it would have been if Union troops had been scattered about on every hilltop and piece of favorable ground in the neighborhood. Such a section of weaker ground was the southern portion of Cemetery Ridge, and with his amateurish lack of appreciation for the big picture, Sickles didn't see why his Corps ought to stay there.
0: When Sickles was discussing with Artillery Chief Henry Hunt, his desire to move his corps forward to what he considered a superior position. Hunt had pointed out what should have been obvious to Sickles. That is, the Emmitsburg Road might well be quote-unquote commanding ground, but to get there, Sickles would have to unhook himself from Hancock's second corps and leave a yawning 600 or so yard gap between Hancock's left flank and Sickles' right.
2: At the other end, if Sickles lined up his two divisions behind the Emmitsburg Road and down Houck's Ridge, that arrangement would leave Sickles' left flank up in the air, and worse, would leave the round tops completely uncovered. Hunt also pointed out to Sickles that even setting aside the big picture, the new, longer line that Sickles proposed to hold would, in Hunt's words, quote, Require a larger force than the Third Corps alone to hold it. End quote. In other words, Hunt was pointing out the obvious that Sickles simply didn't have enough troops to man the longer line he wanted to move forward and take up. So, big picture, Sickles' new position wouldn't be coherent, that is, wouldn't be tied into the line held by the rest of the army, and Smaller picture, Sickles didn't have enough troops to sufficiently man his new line.
0: That was two major strikes against the idea, and certainly ought to have been enough for any professional military man to set aside the notion of moving the Third Corps forward. But the amateur political general Sickles was not only fixated on the idea that better ground lay to his front— He was also becoming increasingly convinced that the Confederates were about to launch a major attack on his end of the federal line.
2: That Dan Sickles at Gettysburg had visions of Chancellorsville dancing in his head is often cited as a major contributing factor with regard to his decision to move the Third Corps forward without orders on July 2nd. In trying to explain Sickles' mindset at Gettysburg, it's the rare battle narrative that doesn't mention the federal debacle at the Battle of Chancellorsville, and first Stonewall Jackson's flank march, and then Hooker's order to Sickles to give up Hazel Grove. And yet, interestingly, although he would use just about every other possible excuse, justification, an outright lie to defend his decision to move the 3rd Corps forward on July 2nd, Dan Sickles himself never specifically brought up what happened at Chancellorsville as a reason for what he did at Gettysburg. We think that's rather fascinating, since, as I said just a minute ago, historians almost always bring up his experience at Chancellorsville in connection with Sickles' decision-making at Gettysburg. And yet Dan Sickles himself never said that that played a role in the choices he made on July 2nd.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Anyway, interesting.
0: At any rate, in the last show we mentioned how the withdrawal of Buford's Union Horsemen from his front and flank understandably made Sickles nervous. And then it was that reconnaissance into the woods west of the Emmitsburg Road by Burden's sharpshooters and the Third Main that settled the matter for Sickles. After that, he was more convinced than ever that the Confederates were about to launch a major attack on his end of the Federal line, and that he, Dan Sickles, needed to take positive action to counter that threat since, in his view, George Meade wasn't paying enough attention to what was going on down in Sickles' sector of the Federal position.
2: Somewhat ironically, Sickles reached the correct conclusion, but for the wrong reasons. The Confederates, of course, were indeed planning to attack his end of the Union line, but the enemy soldiers, Burden's sharpshooters, and the main men tangled with weren't Longstreet's troops moving into position for that attack, but were instead a brigade of Alabamans from Anderson's division of A.P. Hill's Corps. And just then, those Alabamans were simply the southernmost extension of the Confederate line on Seminary Ridge. In other words, they weren't moving into position to attack the Yankees. The Alabamans were simply holding the southern end of the Confederate line. In any case, all Sickles needed to know to confirm his worst fears was that there were rebel troops over yonder, and having reached the conclusion that an enemy attack was imminent, Dan Sickles, early in the afternoon, sent the two divisions of his corps forward to take up the new line he had been contemplating.
0: In its final form, Sickles' new line started near the buildings of the Kadori Farm on the Emmitsburg Road and ran southwest along the road for about a mile to a large peach orchard owned by a farmer named Sherfy, henceforth known to history as the Peach Orchard.
2: From the Peach Orchard, Sickles' line bent back at almost a 90-degree angle, running southeastward across an open field, down a rocky wooded hillside to the valley of the West Fork of Plum Run, also known as Rose's Run, across a field of ripening wheat, known ever after as The Wheat Field, then up Houck's Ridge and along the ridge to where it ended in the jumbled pile of boulders known as Devil's Den. And where the ridge ended, so did Sickles' line, in the air, half a mile in front of Little Round Top, where it was supposed to be.
0: Likewise, the other end of Sickles' line, up near the Kidori Farm, was equally in the air, hanging out in the middle of a wide, open field a good 600 to 800 yards from the left flank of Hancock's 2nd Corps, with which Sickles' 3rd Corps was supposed to connect.
2: The new line was much longer than the one Meade had assigned to Sickles, and about twice as long as the 3rd Corps could reasonably hold. Especially in the area from the Peach Orchard down to Devil's Den, the line was dangerously thin, with sometimes wide gaps between brigades. In addition, alarmingly, the 3rd Corps now had no reserves left at all, since every available man was up on the paper-thin front line.
0: As we mentioned in the last show, Dan Sickles would always take full responsibility for his decision to move the 3rd Corps forward, claiming he simply did what he thought best. However, despite his best intentions, by rashly advancing the 3rd Corps without orders to a new position, far forward of what Meade intended, The truth is that Sickles recklessly jeopardized the entirety of the federal line at Gettysburg and placed his own men and the rest of the Army of the Potomac in serious danger.
2: These days, most of the debate over Sickles' controversial decision to move the Third Corps forward without orders on July 2nd has nothing to do with whether the movement was wise or not. Just about everyone agrees it was a boneheaded move. But what most of the debate centers around is whether Dan Sickles, albeit unintentionally, saved the day for the Federals at Gettysburg.
0: In James McPherson's excellent book, Battle Cry of Freedom, he suggests that, quote, "...Sickle's unwise move may have unwittingly foiled Lee's hopes," end quote. McPherson believed that once the Confederates found the Union left in an unexpected spot, thanks to Sickle's unauthorized move forward, the rebels weren't able to effectively adapt to and overcome that unexpected situation and so their assaults on the Union left on July 2nd were uncoordinated and disjointed and ultimately unsuccessful.
2: The thinking here is basically that Sickles' new line acted as a breakwater or buffer in front of the main Union position on Cemetery Ridge and the Round Tops, soaking up the fury of the Confederate assault so that the rebels ran out of men and time on July 2nd. And so, thanks to Sickles' unauthorized forward movement, the Confederates' furious but disjointed and uncoordinated attacks ultimately weren't able to break the main federal line there on the southern end of the battlefield on the second day of fighting.
0: In the end, though, this line of thinking can never be more than speculative, can never be more than a game of what if. We simply can't say how Longstreet's attack would have developed if Sickles' 3rd Corps line had remained several hundred yards farther east on Cemetery Ridge, where it was supposed to be. All we can say for certain is that finding a large force of Federal troops unexpectedly deployed at the Peach Orchard and along the Emmitsburg Road forced the Confederate generals to make major on-the-fly modifications to Robert E. Lee's original plan of attack. In that regard, it is true that Sickles' advance more than any other single action dictated the flow of the fighting on the second day of the battle and would also significantly impact what happened on the third day.
2: However, none of that is an endorsement of what Sickles did on July 2nd. In fact, in the end, we have to agree with the conclusion Harry Fans reached in his book Gettysburg the second day when he says, General Sickles increased the odds of Confederate success when he advanced his Third Corps from its important and relatively secure position on Cemetery Ridge. In doing so, he abandoned vital terrain, isolated his Corps, and put the entire army at special risk. It was a grievous error, Mitigated only by the hard and costly fighting of his Corps and by the assistance given it by the Corps of Hancock and Sykes.
0: That means it's time to start to wrap up this episode. As we do so, we want to thank the newest members who have signed up over on Patreon to support the podcast on a monthly basis. And that would be Ryan C, G.P., and Rodney W.
2: Bob H., Cliff K., Robin H., and Barbara B.
0: Andy, Brian S., Randy M., Tom D., and Nicholas S.
2: Then, along with the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, we want to thank some folks who were generous enough to make one-time donations. J Deep, Mike, Ryan and Mark.
0: Y'all are awesome. Thank you.
2: And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to The History Podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time as we see what happened on the Confederate side of the lines after they discovered Sickles' Third Corps troops there where they weren't supposed to be. But until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.